With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club. My name is Brad Stone and I'm Senior Executive Editor for Global Technology at Bloomberg News. Joining us today is my colleague and friend, Stephen Levy, author of the brilliant and revealing new book, Facebook, The Inside Story. Stephen is a pioneer of technology journalism. He wrote about the early years of the computer revolution with his seminal book, Hackers, the formative years of Apple with his books, Insanely Great and The Perfect Thing, and he chronicled the rise of Larry Page and Sergey Brin with In the Plex. Few other writers in Silicon Valley have so efficiently combined access to top founders and inventors with the insight informed by decades of reporting and experience. And if someone asked tonight, we just might get him to tell us the story of finding Albert Einstein's brain. Stephen, welcome to the Commonwealth Club and the Bay Area. Well, thank you, Brad, and thanks to the Commonwealth Club and all of you for coming out here. Uh, so what an amazing time to be having this discussion, Super Tuesday of the 2020 election. And it was only four years ago that Facebook, the company that you're writing about, was pilloried for its role in, in the 2016 election. Uh, in some cases, unfairly or not, perhaps blamed for Donald Trump's election. And so here we are three and a half years later. They're again in the spotlight. Uh, campaigns and candidates are still looking to Facebook to reach their audiences. Are they doing any better? <laughs> well, uh, I guess tomorrow morning we'll wake up and find out, you know, that, uh, to see. But actually, you know, it's almost become uh, accepted now that Facebook is going to be an element in these elections. And we've, uh, in the Democratic side, uh, no one has stood out in the way that Trump did in the 2016 election. Um, uh, we have heard about uh, possible Russian interference on behalf of Sanders, but um, uh, I don't think people are thinking that's decisive. And Facebook has taken measures for the kinds of things the Russians did in 2016. I think we're going to have to wait till after 2020 to see if Facebook actually gets ahead of the game and tries to is successful at thwarting the new techniques that not only the Russians, but uh, people from inside the U.S. and from other countries are going to try uh, in this coming November. Uh, so they, they have made changes and they are more vigilant. But in one aspect, they've kind of remained unwavering. And that's this idea of political ads right. and not holding political ads to the same standards of truthfulness as other speech on Facebook. And Elizabeth Warren, you know, demonstrated that right. kind of cleverly by running an advertisement recently with the obvious untruth. Why is Mark and why is Facebook kind of so stubborn on this issue? Well, that, that, that's a good way to put it. You know, you know, Mark has really dug his heels in on this. And to, to be clear, what we're talking about is um, if you, know, uh, you post something or I post something that's false about a candidate and it starts getting a lot of pickup, as false things often do on Facebook. I just saw today that um, uh, you know, this isn't false, but it just shows how things move on Facebook. In a day with coronavirus and Super Tuesday, the number one story on Facebook is a Fox News story about Hillary's emails. So uh, it, it's not always the top quality stuff that rises to the top. But if we did that, Facebook might fact check it and then put some extra uh, you know, stuff, stuff layered on it to say, hey, this isn't true. It might downrank it. But if I'm a politician and I tell a lie, I can pay to put it in your newsfeed when you wouldn't normally get it. And that, that seems to me skewed and, and weird. Um, in the most extreme form of this criticism, Facebook is criticized yeah. for contributing to the decline of our democracy. Do you think that's overstated? Well, you know, there's a lot of things that are contributing to what some people think is the decline of democracy. And, you know, the, the kind of polarization and dissemination of you know, news which isn't true, I'm trying to avoid the term fake news, uh, doesn't help. And, and the thing that I, I found in the book and is as I tried to see how Facebook 
got here. Because now we're talking about, gee, what does Facebook do about you know the false news that's going on? What does it do about a politician taking an ad that isn't true? Does Facebook have to scrutinize it? And you can see it's a big hole to ask Facebook to be the arbiter of truth in, in all these political ads. Um, yeah, it sounds like a, a very difficult problem. But I tried to turn the clock back and say, how do we get there? How did Facebook paint itself into this corner where they can't really uh, keep its platform free of misleading content, toxic content, and content which is harmful to the body politic. And I think we're going to get to that hopefully in the course of this conversation. But um, is it is it too much to ask Facebook to, to safeguard our democracy? Are we are we putting too much responsibility in, into the hands of a profit-seeking internet company? Well, it's, it's, it's probably too much to ask for it to safeguard the democracy, but it's not too much to ask for it not to harm the democracy. That, that is well said. Um, so we're going to come back to the election and, and the political issues surrounding Facebook. But I'd love to hear the story of the book. You know, you've written books about Apple and, and Google and, and, and computer security. Um, so In the Plex came out in 2011. Right. When and how and why did you decide to undertake, you know, this account, this thorough chronicle of, of a company where there had been some journalism and, and a, a dramatized movie, <laughs> a well-known dramatized movie, The Social Network, about the early years? Well, I, I, I could pinpoint the date that I decided I wanted to do this. It was August 27th, 2015, when Mark Zuckerberg posted in his newsfeed that a billion people had been on Facebook the day before. And covering Facebook for a lot of years, I knew, obviously, he had ambitions to get uh, you know billions of people on there. But the fact that a billion had been on the same day uh, really got my attention. And this wasn't like a, a spike. This was a baseline. They were growing up from there, going up from there. And, you know, the World Cup gets a billion people and, and maybe some other big events. Um, and that's passive. This is an interactive network where, uh, in theory, a voice can percolate throughout the whole network. And um, the billion people all have their own interconnected networks. And I thought, this is something new. This hasn't happened before. And I really want to tell the story of how it happened, who these people were, what they wanted, and what the implications were. Um, I was surprised to find out that some of the implications, you know, in 2015, they hadn't really thought too much about. But uh, I thought the best way to do it, and I've done this before, is to get cooperation, is to get them to agree to talk to me. Because uh, who's better to hear from than your subjects? And, you know, when I do something like this, uh, as I did with Google, uh, there's no strings attached. So I'm not saying you get to approve the contents of the book or even see the contents of the book. Um, it's just, uh, hey, you've made some history here. I think you deserve it to the world to have uh, an impartial person come in and help tell that history. There's a value to that. And there's a value to you as a company to have in your hands, something that explains who you are that you can give to other people and say, yeah, this is us. And eventually, you know, after like a no, and then, a, well, if anyone did, it would be you. And then let's take another meeting. Um, it got to yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no Silicon Valley company appreciates uh, any journalist, particularly one as, as good as Stephen, rooting around uh, inside their walls. So how, how did you get them to yes? Well, I, I wrote something to Mark and Cheryl saying pretty much what I was just said to you. Um, and I think they were ready. I think that's probably the, the best way to put it. I mean, you really have to ask them. But, uh, you know, I, I think the fact that I had written about them a lot and was fair probably had a lot to do with Did, the show. In the, in the earliest conception of the book, was, was Mark the hero? I wouldn't say a hero, but... Um, I certainly in my as I approached it and I try to keep a, a pretty blank mind in anything I do, whether it's a, an article or certainly a book. Um, I didn't think that what was going to happen uh, would happen. I, I, I thought it would be mu much like the Google book where I would have to choose what is the sense of drama in this book? What's the moral dilemma that Facebook you know, is faced with that is going to be you know, uh, the obstacle in my book and the story? Because I write these things as narratives. This is a story. This, is, this history of Facebook, uh, to me, has to read like a story and give you a reason to turn the page. Um, and uh, I thought maybe it would be this Internet.org thing that they had been working on where they were trying to uh, get Facebook 
all around the world and uh, doing it in part by giving away uh, free data to use Facebook, which a lot of people felt was unfair because competitors wouldn't have the same access. And then the ground completely shifts under your feet. Like, when do you realize, okay, this is a different story than the one I set out on? Well, the date is pretty clear there, isn't it? It's in in November of uh, 2016, uh, only a couple months after I started the book. The first thing I did was uh, they invited me to go to Africa with uh, Mark Zuckerberg. We went to Lagos, Nigeria. And it was funny because it was kind of peak Facebook. They loved him there. And people generally loved Mark at that point. Facebook had had a lot of problems in the past, but it skated all through that. And he was much admired. Well, you have a quote in the book of some guy saying, my, I can break my life into two parts, before Mark and after Mark. Like, he was, he was viewed as, a, as yeah. a conquering hero. Right, right, definitely. And then uh, that, that was the, the, the top. And then uh, I think Facebook would say, we could break our life into two stages before the election and after the election. Okay, so you go back in, in this book um, and, and look at Zuckerberg as a kid, Right. And, and in college and uh, in high school, in college and starting Facebook, you know, I, I guess I was wondering, you know, as I started reading it and I think it became clear, like, why, what what about Mark as a kid? And, you know, you see all sorts of <laughs> very Zuckerberg like behavior of kind of bedeviling his parents and being very headstrong. You know, what about that time period? And, you know, and, you know, did you draw out of and how does it inform the CEO we see today? Well, you know, I wound up writing more about early Facebook. The Mark stuff, than, than I thought I would. The Mark stuff, look, you have to have, the book has to be somewhat of a biography of, of Mark because he's so, um, you know, intertwined with Facebook. He is Facebook in a way. Um, so I, I really wanted to learn about him, but I also wound up writing more about early Facebook because uh, it had a lot of relevance to the Facebook we saw having problems over the last three years. And, you know, uh, one story, uh, about Mark in his early days really stuck with me. I, I got to talk to his parents and his mother told me the story that he went to this high school, public high school in Ardsley, Westchester County, where he grew up. And the public high school didn't have enough computer courses for him. Uh, it didn't have enough advanced placement courses for him to get a good resume to get into Harvard. So he wanted to go to private school. And his mother really wanted him to go to Horace Mann, which was an excellent private school near their house where he could stay home and commute. Uh, His older sister, Randy, was leaving for college that year. And his mother really didn't want to lose two children to school in the same year. And uh, Mark had heard about this uh, prep school called uh, Phillips Exeter. And something about it struck a chord with him. Uh, Maybe they had a really good computers uh, center, uh, and he wanted to go there. And the mother said, listen, just give Horace Mann a chance. Can you just interview with them? And he said, well, I'll interview with them, but I'm going to Exeter. And he went to Exeter. (laughs) The story makes me think of of the somewhat infamous uh, moment where he went to visit Sequoia Capital in the early days of Facebook. And didn't he wear pajamas and went barefoot? Because he knew he was doing it diligently, but he knew he was never going to take their money. Right. Well, that, that was also in part because of Sean Parker's instigation. They were kind of getting revenge for... Uh, Sean Parker, because he felt Sequoia didn't deal quite uh, fairly with him uh, with his company, Plaxo. But um, I I liken it more to things that happened at Facebook when people would say to him, Mark, you know, maybe we shouldn't make Beacon uh, and and opt out. You know, you probably describe describe what Beacon was. Beacon uh, in 2007 was a product that Facebook got a lot of trouble for. It basically put a little piece of uh, spyware on websites. We've got websites to install them. So it would recognize when a Facebook member came to the site and bought something. And when it did, that purchase would show up on the newsfeed of that person's friends. So what's the worst case scenario? I guess, you know, I bought a diamond ring and, you know, it shows up in the newsfeed of my girlfriend who I was going to propose to. I guess an even worse one was is going to show up with my girlfriend, and it wasn't for her. But <laughs> but in this case, you know, literally it was for someone who was going to spring it on, on, on his girlfriend. And there were other the Christmas presents and other things. And it was a huge outcry. And uh, Facebook got bloodied in a way that it hadn't before. 
So some of these early anecdotes, and there are others from his college years that are quite unflattering. Uh, you know, some, Stephen has some of, of the early instant messages, um, you know, snooping on a, a, a Harvard Crimson reporter's email to see if they're writing a negative story about the Facebook. Um, and it, it, it makes me wonder, like, is, is he the same guy? You know, how much has he really changed from, you know, from, from this, you know, frankly, this kind of headstrong brat that he clearly was in the, in the early days? Well, you have to factor in, um, you know, youth and callousness in, in, in to, to some of it. But uh, I think there were signals that had to be included. Um, Mark, and I asked him directly, that, you know, the advantage of access is that when you find things like that, you can ask directly in, in a way that I don't, I don't really see in, in any other research. And anyone asked him that. And he said... Uh, not only did he feel that these things were taken out of context, a lot of them were jokes, um, but uh, it really hurt him. Uh, Mark doesn't often show emotion like that, and, but this was an exception. And he said that uh, it had a big effect on him, and it not only affected what he would do, did with his notebooks, which we might mention later on, um, when he destroyed the notebooks he kept early in Facebook's history, but uh, it actually had an impact much more recently on Mark's uh, pivot to what he calls a privacy-focused vision in using encryption to, uh, in, not only in WhatsApp, but introducing it to Facebook's other properties. So what happened to him might not happen to other people. So... The notebooks were my next question, actually. Uh, I cued uh, you up there. They're called, it's called the Book of Change. Tell us, tell us what it is, uh, why you only found one piece of it, and what it says. Sure. So when I first met Mark, it was 2006. It was March 2006. I was working on a story for Newsweek. Um, and uh, maybe you worked on it with me. Yeah, and you should say what kind of an interview he was back then. I, I'm, it get, was, I'm getting to that. It was special. I'm getting to that, Brad. Yeah, yeah. So, so Brad and I were working on a story on Web 2.0, and uh, we heard about Mark. You know, the, we were a big thing about MySpace in, in that, that piece, MySpace and uh, YouTube, that brand-new company that – was independent at the time. And uh, I thought maybe if I meet Mark, because I heard this hot new company had a big share of the college market, uh, he can give me a quote for the story, and, I, and I'd meet him. I like to meet interesting uh, young people starting companies. So we met at the PC Forum, which is a, a great technology conference run by Esther Dyson. And uh, we arranged to meet at lunch. We sat next to each other at lunch, and I tossed him some softball questions, saying, well, how many colleges, you know, does Facebook appear on, and how many members? And he didn't answer me. He just stared at me. And it just went on and on, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? Did I offend him? Is he going through some episode? Is this a fit or something? <laughs> and um, finally, I changed the subject. I said, would well, you know anything about this conference? And he said, no, and I told him a bit about it, and he... And he warmed up a little and gave me some cursory answers to these questions. And I thought of that later on uh, when this notebook came up, because uh, I had heard that there was a notebook he kept uh, and that he sometimes would share little pieces of it with the people at Facebook. Because in this notebook, he would design products, he'd write sketches for them, and he'd write about Facebook's vision. And sometimes he'd go to the engineers and say, yeah, here's what I'm thinking about for this. And maybe then later they'd talk about it over the whiteboard. Um, but then I also heard he destroyed those notebooks, which was crushing. If you're writing a book about Facebook, what better to get the notebooks with your subject in real time designing the products? So I figured... Maybe somebody still has copies. And every person I talked to early in Facebook who I thought might have seen some pages or perhaps knew someone who saw some pages, might have shared it with them, um, I'd mentioned, you know, I'd really like to see those, those notebooks. And they would change the subject or say, maybe it's in my garage somewhere or whatever. And I'd say, you know what, here's my address. If I were to get some of these pages at my home, it doesn't even need to have a return address. That would be all right. And one day I went to my mailbox. There's a big brown envelope with 17 pages of the Book of Change, which is basically the Rosetta Stone of Facebook. And it happened right around the time that Mark was just staring at me and saying nothing. And wait, and you have no idea who sent them to you? 
I, um, I don't know who sent it to me. Okay. You know, I might have an idea, but maybe it's best that I don't know. Got it. Um, I need, I needed it verified, of course, because, you know, I worked in, as you did, for a magazine called Newsweek a few years before I got there. Uh, they had this episode where they spent a lot of money for the Hitler diaries. Um, and they went to print with it and then learned it was a forgery. So I didn't want to be Hitler diaried, uh, with some fake pages. Okay, so to be clear, so Mark wrote these early Facebook 2006. Yeah, and this was the time when Facebook was changing from a college network um, and then maybe introduced high schools by them to a network where everyone can join. And he wrote his plans for open registration where how he would do it, where everyone would get in, how he would finesse the privacy implications of that. Uh, it was also the year that they were designing the news feed, which is what is still the center of Facebook, the soul of Facebook. You open your Facebook page, and there's this stream of stuff that uh, from your network that Facebook selects, you know, uh, for you to see. And we could talk about how it does that. But he was, you know, saying what what are the criteria for what's going to appear on people's news feeds? And he also wrote about his grand vision for Facebook. He called it the information engine. And he described it to uh, like a great government database where there'd be information on everyone. And he also wrote three pages of this thing called Dark Profiles, which later became a controversial subject uh, around, around Facebook. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It's an incredibly controversial idea. It's basically Facebook having profiles of people who aren't on Facebook. And, of course, you know, the privacy implications of that, the people who are you know, conscientiously opting out of social media are, are kind of horrifying. Facebook has always denied Right. But they keep dark profiles. And then here is the concept in, in this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the way he wrote about it was he thought it would almost be like a Wikipedia page that you were involved in, you know, that your friends would write about you. And essentially it would reach critical mass and the gravitational pull would bring you into Facebook. Uh, I think that was the thinking. Um, and I talked to people about this who, who were there at the time. And they said that, you know, obviously they didn't use that Wikipedia style. Um, we would have known about that um, being on the platform. But uh, there was a product they called Dark Profiles that when someone tagged you in a photo or, you know, referred to you in, in some other way, you'd be, your stub of you would be there. And then a few years later, um, I talked to the head of Facebook's growth team who told me that he used a thing called dark profiles. Um, he said there was a dark profile on people, and when they thought it was ripe, they would take out an ad on Google in the name of a person who had you know, the dark profile, and then that person would search for his or her name, as people often do, uh, and, the, and there would be an ad saying, hey, you're on Facebook, and they say, what? And they'd click on it and maybe be motivated to join. So I actually want to go back to, to, to this uh, vision of Mark as an interview subject in 2000, early on. Did you ever ask him about that, what the, what the silences were about? You know, I, I never really did, actually. Maybe I, I, I should have gone we back We should to say he, he has evolved and matured. And I, I would cooked. get that silence, I think, if I, if I asked him that. <laughs> Whenever, sometimes I'd ask him a real stopper, because he doesn't do that silence thing much anymore. But sometimes if you really pose one to him, you could stop him dead in the tracks and you get that wide-eyed stare that one of his, uh, his executives called uh, Sauron's gaze. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I, and I actually want to address, and forgive me for getting a little meta here in, in my questioning, but this idea of, of access, the fact that you got inside Facebook. I mean, it's sort of fashionable now in our, our business among some journalists to think that, like, access is bad and you shouldn't even ask and, you, you know, you're outside the wall kind of lobbing grenades of criticism over. You know, that, that's not your style of journalism. But, you know, there have been some critiques of, of, of your book and this kind of reporting in general. And I'm sort of curious what, how you feel about that. Well, I, I, in a way, I, I actually don't understand it. I think that... Um, if you're writing a book about someone you know, or, or a group of people that can accompany, what could be bad about getting access to your subjects and hearing what they have to say about it? It wasn't like I limited myself to talking only to people at Facebook. I talked to people outside of Facebook, just as I would the same people I would have talked to if they didn't cooperate. And uh, of some of the same people I would talk to uh, inside the company, I'd have other conversations with outside the company. Um, and sometimes they would, I would talk to them in the company, and then they leave, and we'd have maybe even better conversations after they left. Um, and then, of course, I had benefit of 
a lot of people, other people writing about Facebook during the time I was writing it. There has been terrific journalism by hundreds of people who woke up every every morning and tried to like nail Facebook. And all too often they 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 found great stuff. All too often for Facebook, great for me because uh, you know they were my research assistants, uh, digging up stuff that I could follow up on and um, sometimes illuminate things that I was seeing. So I, I I don't see the downside of this. It wasn't like that I was giving away anything by doing that. It just seems to me pure gain. And when I quote someone from Facebook, I think the whole book, you can see how thick the book is, you know, uh, um, it's just like loaded with the context that you could, you could measure what they say and get the, uh, the background as to whether you can trust it or not. So I don't need to circle something in red crayon and say, hey, this contradicts something you've been reading for 200 pages. Uh, it's clear. If you hadn't had the access, how different a book would it have been? I think it would have been, it, it would have been a lot different. I don't think you would have understood Facebook as well. So I want to ask the, the big question, and there are a couple of audience questions on this topic as well, which is, you know, you, you start the book with this trip to Africa. Mark is, is a hero. Facebook has a billion users signed on concurrently. You know, the, the stock has recovered from the IPO and is doing well. And then the election and kind of everything falls apart. The business is st- still doing well, but it's been a couple of years of kind of brutal PR crises one after another. Why did what happened? You know, why did this company seemingly, at least in the in the public mind, get so off track? Well, I, I the, if as far insofar as I do have a thesis in the book is that all these things that happened after the election had seeds that were planted earlier in Facebook's history, and I go through this and you know and and, it, and set the stage uh, for what went wrong in the last three years, actually, things went wrong earlier. And, you know, I, right, I, but they always survived. Yeah, they always survived. But, you know, the, the vulnerabilities were there. They were, you know, um, you know, uh, was, was it um, he was the playwright uh, Strindberg was who said that you plant a gun in Act One and has to go off in Act Three. Well, I had Act Three and I went back looking for the guns in Act One. And what were they? Well, here's one example. Uh, Cambridge Analytica happened in 2010. Um, you know, Facebook had this product called Platform, and it invited outside software developers to write uh, applications. They even could be just surveys that you take, um, you know, that ran on top of Facebook. And in order to do that and make the application social, Facebook had to give them some degree of, of information uh, about the user. Uh, in 2010... They gave even more information. Uh, one of the things that was happening then is Mark was uh, rolling out a product called Instant Personalization, which would enable you to sort of duplicate Facebook outside of Facebook. And he gave away then to these developers not only the profiles of the people who signed up for the applications or took a survey, but the profiles of their friends. Now, each Facebook user has an average of 130 friends. So it doesn't take a lot of people you know, signing up for the survey to get to very, very big numbers. And that's exactly what happened when the researcher, Alexander Kogan of Cambridge University, uh, wrote a survey, paid some 200,000 people or so, uh, you know, some of them on Amazon Turk, to, to take the survey and not only harvested their information that they, in theory, knew that that was happening, but of all their friends who had no clue it was happening. And this was all within Facebook's rules. This was the way Facebook was supposed to work. Now, when this was rolling out, uh, a lot of uh, Mark's lieutenants, some of Mark's key lieutenants, thought this was a terrible idea and a wrong idea. And they, they, they push back on him. But guess what? I'm going to Exeter. And it rolled out with this giant information giveaway. Other people said, all right, if, Mark, if we're going to do it, we really have to audit this carefully to make sure that if one of these developers gets this information, this, these huge databases, they can't break our rules and sell it to someone else, you know, or license it to someone else or give it away. And that's what happened with this researcher who happened to license it to Cambridge Analytica, which was part of this UK military contractor. It was involved in the far right wing and it was used to help, uh, the first, the Ted Cruz campaign and then the Trump campaign.
And there's also a culture in question here, right? An engineering mindset that's, that's fairly common in Silicon Valley. At, at Facebook, they literally called it move fast and break things. You know, what, what kind of conclusions did you reach about the, the culpability of that culture in, in kind of moving fast, um, rolling out products quickly without a lot of um, consideration of the consequences? And yeah, considering those, the impacts right. later. So move fast and break things, you know, is was the motto of, of, of I would say unfortunately named in retrospect. Well, yeah, in retrospect. It actually started uh, to represent the way they wrote code. You know, uh, Facebook was written on this very, uh, these new tools, the right, very fast web code. And you could update your, you know, uh, site uh, multiple, multiple times a day. So Microsoft used to do versions of their products every couple of years. Uh, Facebook would update their product, do new versions like a few times a day. And engineers were encouraged to post code, you know, to write production code, the, the stuff that faces the user, really early in their time there, I think even in their boot camp. And if you crash the system, that was almost like a badge of honors. That was like move fast and break things. But it came kind of a metaphor and a, a modus operandi for everything they did for pushing out products. For instance, when they wanted to go international and, and get as many countries as possible as fast as possible, uh, they moved in, into some places uh, where the people had, you know, only recently had gotten the internet, had no idea how to evaluate you know, digital content. And uh, Facebook got these out there and they used crowdsource translating uh, while people at Facebook couldn't even read the language. You know, no, no one watching what was going on could read the language. And that has some actually tragic repercussions in Myanmar in particular when content led to violence. And that was before Facebook could really assess what was happening. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Do you have faith that that mindset has changed? Well, there's a sort of a, a dual mindset here. You know, a lot of Facebook now is split screen. Um, and one is uh, that while Facebook is spending a lot of energy to win back our trust, to try to fix things in a very engineering kind of way, saying, what are the flaws with what happened in the 2016 election and, you know, and other problems we have? And what are the fixes for it? Uh, on the other hand, they feel that they have to still move fast. They feel that uh, if they don't, uh, they're toast, you know, like any technology company. So I remember one conversation I had with Mark. It was before uh, the 2018 Developers Conference and not long after Cambridge Analytica. And he was telling me how he was going to do his keynote. He said, well, the first 15 minutes, I'm going to talk about trust, winning back the trust. And the next 15 minutes, I'm going to talk about the big things we're doing next. And one of the things was Facebook dating. And I thought, Mark, don't you think with all of this concerned about privacy and Cambridge Analytica, uh, people are going to think that's too much. Um, and he said, well, Facebook has always been kind of a dating thing. People have used it for that. And we're just going in that direction. And he went on to something else. Then a few minutes later, he said, do you think that's a bad idea? <laughs> and have they, have they launched that? I know yeah, in some yeah. countries they, they actually run into a problem with it. Some, some breach a couple of days ago. So, so let's bring in uh, Sheryl Sandberg. She has been the COO. She's and, here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, she's uh, been Mark's deputy for uh, 10 years, over 10 years. Yeah. Um, she, and, she planned on five, by the way. Okay, right. And you kind of identify, I think, a little bit of, of maybe an original sin in how they structured their relationship. Like Mark had product. He had growth. Uh, Cheryl had everything else, included policy and PR, and you know, and that, and and of course, growth and product trumped everything, which led to some of the blind right. spots. Right? Talk a little bit about that, and you know, whether they would see it that way—that they had a kind of institutional arrangement that led to some of their problems. Well, I, when I asked Cheryl about it, she basically confirmed, "Yeah, I, I had all the stuff that Mark didn't want to do," um, and it could have gone a different way. I felt, um, you know, Cheryl comes on. And she's a prize. She's a, a great executive. Um, uh, she comes from Google. She has a lot of gravitas. Uh, she led the biggest product at Google. 
accounted for almost all their revenues, one of the most successful ad products ever. Uh, and uh, she also knew a lot about culture. And, and you know, uh, Mark expected her, and she did, uh, refine Facebook's culture, allow it to scale, and took, it out of, took some of the dorm-like elements out of it. But that split, I felt, um, led to problems because you can't separate the policy implications from the products. And Cheryl felt, I think, that uh, it was a sign of her competency that she can contain things within her organization. Uh, she didn't like to take things to mark in, unless it was really a big problem. And she underestimated, frankly, some of the problems of, of fake news that you know, we could talk about how that got uh, Facebook consciously allowed that to thrive at the, at the end, by the end of the election. Um, and you know, then came the Russian in, in involvement, the, the disinformation. Um, and it led to the point where the chief security officer who reported up through Cheryl, who I was surprised to find, he had never actually had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Mark Zuckerberg. You imagine the chief security officer of a company never meeting with the CEO? Um, and this is Alex Tamos, who's correct. since become something of a whistleblower. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he had to sort of vault past, I wouldn't call it a firewall, but vault, vault past the chain of command to go to Mark's lieutenants to tell them about this problem that the Russians might be involved um, and got them to form a, a group called Project P for propaganda to look into fake news. Um, so there's a great audience question, uh, which, which kind of touches on a, a controversial point you make in the book and one that Cheryl has kind of recently pushed back on. Uh, you know, so, so in the book, you, um, you know, you mentioned the tragic death of her husband, uh, Dave Goldberg in, I think, 2014, and how, you know, completely understandably she, you know, was, was absent for a period of time and, and obviously distracted and how that might have opened an opportunity for some of the things in her organization to get a little bit out of control. And she, you know, maybe also understandably didn't, didn't uh, take well to that and said something along the lines of, you know, it, it was, you know, of, co of course I was distracted, but it didn't have anything to do with Facebook's problems. Why did you, you know, what, tell, tell us why you drew that conclusion. Well, I, I included that as, as one factor why, I think it was in 2015, her husband died, by the way. And uh, I think I included that among one factor that led among many that, that, that led to these, this stuff not getting identified or, or dealt with. Um, I think, I, I didn't say it was directly, you know, Dave died and, and it was a terrible tragedy. He was a fantastic guy. Um, and, uh, the, but Cheryl, um, built a really good organization, a solid organization. And a few people told me that when she was, you know, either gone or then putting herself back together, you know, and understandably it, it takes a while. And she said that uh, last week when she talked about the book, uh, that, that for months she was distracted. Um, when she got back, some things, some people she hired learned to sort of take care of themselves in, in that organization and maybe had a little more autonomy. And in the people I talked to, it seemed that uh, particularly the D.C. folks, um, there was a fellow who was running that office named uh, Joel Kaplan, um, who had a, a bigger voice in things like how to handle fake news. Um, and certainly Cheryl, as I write about, was involved in some of those meetings. Um, but uh, the people told me that Cheryl wasn't taking the lead in one meeting in particular where they decided not to intervene in fake news towards the end of the election. So it wasn't, you know, a one to one thing that that, that happened. I think Cheryl maybe didn't frame it the, quite the way I framed it in the book. Well, what was the what was their justification for uh, taking a flyer on fake news? Well, um, you know, uh, some people in the Washington office told me that uh, they believe that since Joel is a Republican, he's, his job was he felt his job was to watch out for the conservatives. Um, and the thing that was discussed that you know, other people at Facebook confirmed was they didn't want to mess with the election. Basically, uh, even the people who were pro Hillary thought that it wasn't going to make a difference in the long run. But um, by keeping your thumb off the scales in this case, you actually were allowing a tilted playing field to continue. So a thumb on the scales might not have been tilting the playing field, but 
leveling it. And we should give a little bit of context. So in 2016, conservatives were complaining about bias on Facebook. Um, Glenn Beck and I think Rush Limbaugh visited. Right, yeah, and this, this, this uh, Kaplan, uh, you know, brought all suggested the, brought them in. that they bring the conservatives uh, into Menlo Park and meet with Mark and Cheryl, uh, which which they did. And, um, you know, so Facebook has uh, done a lot to try to bend over backwards to placate conservatives uh, who charge really without evidence that the news feed is stacked against them. I think if that were true, as I said earlier, you wouldn't see the top news uh, uh, item of the day, the Fox News thing. Yeah. And so how much did that sort of focus and concern uh, over conservative voices and making sure a very obviously liberal Silicon Valley company isn't inclined to the left? How much did that concern you know, become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that allowed then Republicans to weaponize or, or at least exploit uh, right. Facebook's willingness to tolerate fake news. Well, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me, and, and you'd see this when Mark, uh, the first time he went to D.C., um, and even before that, when the general counsel, Colin Stretch, you know, uh, testified, um, you know, the, the conservatives, I think, were gaming the ref here. I think they were basically um, pushing to make sure that Facebook didn't do things to, you know, rein in, you know, that, uh, that, that, that content, which was, you know, percolating so much, the, the pro-conservative content. Um, so, uh, I think the, the proof to me is the last time that Mark went to DC, um, he had successfully placated them because he, in a way, he almost gave them what they wanted. Are you seeing the same dynamic play out in 2020? Um, well, too soon to, to, to tell, but uh, I think that uh, you could argue that the uh, ad policy is something that the conservatives are saying, yeah, yeah, Mark, don't change that. And it's like the people left, like Elizabeth Warren, who were saying, you know, this is incredibly unfair. Um, I think it was, it was Boz, a Facebook executive, who said... Andrew that, Bosworth. Yeah, Andrew, who said that, that the Trump campaign ran the single best digital ad campaign I've ever seen from any advertiser in 2016. Has, has anyone, now that we're a little bit into this election cycle, do you see any signs that other candidates are getting as sophisticated? No, because the Trump campaign is, you know, building on what it had before. So it's got much of a base to go forward on. And um, no single uh, Democrat has come close. So uh, I don't think they're going to blow it off like uh, Hillary did the last time around. You know, both sides were offered, for instance, a, a chance to have Facebook employees embedded uh, in the campaign to, to some degree to give them advice. And uh, the Clinton campaign said no. And the Parscale, you know, Brad Parscale, who ran the Trump campaign, said, bring it on. You know, let me learn everything here. And interestingly, Facebook would send, you know, died in the wool Republicans to help Trump. Uh, um, you know, so they would trust them, which I think is an interesting practice. An audience member asked, does Sheryl Sandberg have to go? Uh, I'm not going to make that uh, call. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think, I think, I think, yeah, look. She's done a fantastic job building that business. She has. It, the question is, does Cheryl want to go? She, she told me, and we had a very emotional final interview. Uh, uh, I talked to her a few times, and um, Cheryl prepares very well for an interview. And I sometimes you feel um, we weren't really getting down to, you know, the level of raw truth in, in, in there. Um, I was getting maybe some of the answers that she had prepared. Um, so I said, Cheryl, I need a two-hour interview with you. When you do a two-hour interview with someone, in the second hour, things often get real. And they really did in this case. Um, she got very uh, um, emotional. And she described how she signed up for Facebook for five years. And then she did that. And then uh, the IPO happened and she wanted to stay. And um, now she's there 10 years. Right. And, you know, and, and still on it. And she says she would have left um, not to run for office, but to uh, maybe for a post in the uh, Clinton administration um, had that happened. But she was still, you know, not only passionate about Facebook and she she made, made it clear I believed her but um, also you know just incredibly like wounded not only for Facebook but for herself uh, for what happened I think what really hurts her is that she's got a high standard certainly for her employees but most of all for herself and she fell short and she's in pain that she didn't 
do all that she could for Facebook. It, it, she missed the stuff. The, the book, though, kind of leads the reader to ask about the authenticity of, of that emotion, and not just Cheryl, but Zuck, too. I mean, you've got amazing anecdotes of like of Mark getting his his armpits blow dried before <laughs> before a, oh. a speech uh you know of, of Cheryl um you know kind of cultivating moments not hugging Jack Dorsey in Congress because of the image that would send um you know doing things in interviews to evoke sympathy and and of course look all executives do that yeah. to some extent so um you know are they unduly concerned with their images well i i think mark uh, maybe less so. I don't, I don't. I don't think Mark. Mark the 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 famous armpit gate, which you know, <laughs> got circulated very widely in the in the book. When you know, like an early reader, you know, uh, reviewer, you know, mentioned it. Uh, it's a disturbing image. Oh, it is a disturbing image. <laughs> but, I, but I have to say, when you know, this was on the record. When you know, the 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 person who did the the actual deed um, the, told me that it was almost like giving me a gift. He said, "Stephen, I'm going to tell you this one." Uh, it, you know, no way this isn't going in the book. And he did it because Mark, for lack of a better term, just sweats sometimes, particularly in his early days when he was not comfortable with public speaking. Um, and she did have to minimize that. He has a new strategy now the last few years, which is that he has the backstage, the green room, uh, chilled to Arctic temperatures. Mm. So I, I interviewed him on stage once. And you know, what I learned was the next time I do that, if, if that ever happens again, uh, bring a parka. <laughs> Um, it's, it's certainly one way to, uh, to solve the sweat problem. Um, uh, you've got all these great uh, anecdotes about product development at Facebook. And, and, and the one pattern that leaps out is that this is a company that is copying a whole, a whole bunch. Text right. status updates from, from Twitter, stories from Instagram, check-ins from Foursquare. Uh, is, that, is that, I mean, it's, to some extent, that's like the MO of Silicon Valley, right? Uh, fast right. copying, well, but does Facebook there, There's do a more? sort of a blatancy about it at Facebook. And, and I, I get into uh, the playbook by which Mark acquired Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus. Um, and he would sometimes even say to them, well, if you don't do this, we're going to copy what you do. And, and when he, he unsuccessfully tried to buy Foursquare and he said, well, you know, we're going to copy that. And sure enough, a little later, this, uh, pro, this feature called check-in came in there. And when he really rubbed it in, because the logo for check-in was a square with a little four etched in it, uh, which caused some ripples at the Foursquare office. The most blatant one is stories. And, you know, uh, Snapchat was a company that did not succumb to Mark's charms. But the playbook was really interesting to me how he drew it up. And I found a great irony there because in 2006, Yahoo had tried to buy Facebook for a billion dollars, uh, which is a lot of money for a small company then. Wasn't make, Facebook wasn't making any money. Um, and... Uh, the investors urged Mark to take the money. Uh, Mark's lieutenant, uh, his top executive, said, Mark, take the money. Um, some of his employees thought, wow, I'm 22 years old. I could buy a house. This is amazing. And Mark felt very strongly that there was a great future for this company, and he didn't want to sell. And finally, he wiggled out of it by uh, because Terry Summel, the CEO of Yahoo, uh, the stock went down. He wanted to lower the, the amount. Um, and it, it was a traumatic experience for Mark. But here he is a few years later going to people who were like him, like the Instagram, you know, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger of Instagram. Um, and a couple of years later, the WhatsApp founders and being in the opposite position. And he broke them. He had a playbook. He would, you know, it was shock at all. He would get personally involved. They'd be at his house. He would promise them independence. Um, and he would throw an incredible amount of money at him. At them, and they and they would and they would cave. But he knows there's no opportunity to buy Snapchat now. He yet he still now, relentlessly but, copies. I mean, this is the other side of Mark, which is that he is competitive and a bit win at all costs. Right. So well, for Snapchat, he he tried to uh, first do a, a product that uh, copied it's the ephemeral nature of, of the snaps um, called Poke. Uh, he sent an email to you know uh, Evan you know uh, Spiegel, uh, the, the CEO of, of Snap, saying, "I hope you enjoy Poke." Uh, the product was a failure, but uh, a few years later, um, actually, it was Kevin Systrom who copied the most popular 
uh, feature of Snap at the time called Stories, and it became a wildly popular uh, feature at Facebook, and, and it might be Facebook's future. So, so this copying has been sort of competitively effective for Facebook, but it also strikes me, you know, from following Facebook and from reading your book, that you know, Zuckerberg doesn't have a lot of friends in Silicon Valley, or at least, you know, cer- yeah. certainly among among other tech companies and competitors. Um, you know, is is um, I don't know. Does he go too far? I guess does Facebook go too far no, in copying I, innovations? Well, he you know he has he has some friends you know, um, but there are a number of people you know. Interestingly, they won't allow me to put their name to it who simply don't like Mark and don't trust Mark. Well, it's, it's remarkable that the companies that you mentioned that Facebook has acquired, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Oculus, the virtual reality company, that those founders have left and that generally as a group, they do not have nice things to say about Facebook, even though this company made them billionaires. Right, right. Well, I talked to a lot of people who are absolutely, you know, incredibly rich, who have, you know, like a lot of animus against Facebook. They're really angry at the guy who, who made them super wealthy. Um, in the case of these companies, I think one thing is the independence part of that playbook uh, did not play out the last few years. Mark very consciously has wanted to bring those products after a number of years running relatively independently uh, under his tighter control. And uh, he took autonomy from the from those founders and they felt uh, cheated for some reason. And, you know, uh, I talked to Brian Acton, who is the uh, co-founder of WhatsApp and said, well, you do have $3 billion. <laughs> yeah. He said, well, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, I can, I, I, it does I, seem like, okay, so, well, you know, when you sell your company for billions of dollars, even if you're promised autonomy, it does seem like in the longer term you might expect yeah. that you're going to be kind of drawn into the bigger right. company. So it, seems, it feels like the enmity must be about a little bit more than that. I think it is. I think, you know, that um, maybe they felt like the way it happened wasn't above board. So you went and talked to Bill Gates about Facebook. Yeah. He, he's been a, a bit of a, a mentor. Well, he went on the record. He's, he's Mark's friend. Right. Uh, so talk about that, having, uh, having that conversation. What, what does Bill think about how far Facebook has come and Mark's impact? Well, uh, Bill, you know, it, I think, admires what, what Facebook has done. Um, he's gone, he went through his own crucible uh, about 20 years ago in the antitrust charges that maybe Facebook is just entering that, that period. Um, he's advised uh, Mark and Mark's wife Priscilla on you know, uh, philanthropic uh, efforts. Um, you know, who else better to go to than Bill and Melinda Gates? And though uh, he draws the line somewhere uh, in the parallel between him and Mark. You know, a lot of people say, well, they're just like alike. They're Harvard dropouts who had big vision and made it happen. But Bill said, like, you know, it's different because, you know, I wrote a lot more code. And you could tell Mark I said that. So he, he had to get. So they're very, they're so similar, right? It's, yeah. Bill's just as competitive with Mark and or as Mark. And he just had to get a little. Yeah. Big in. Okay, well, we, I want to move fast because we still have a lot of ground to cover. Don't break things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Facebook's trying some new things recently, in particular to counter fake news and enforce some control over their algorithm. One thing is uh, the news tab, and it's, it's coming to most users' phones soon, and it's a way to, much like Apple News, order um, yeah. kind of authoritative news sources, not let the kind of algorithmic chaos run rampant. Did, do you feel like that'll work? Um, well, you know, I talk about the troubled relationship Facebook had uh, with the news industry, and it sort of stumbled into that, um, you know, when it made its platform so um, open for people to post news and for um, unreliable news to, you know, far outperform uh, the, the places that we consider reliable, New York Times, you know, Wall Street Journal, Wired Magazine, uh, you know. Um, and uh, so this is his latest effort to placate the news. A few years ago, they said, well, why don't you pivot to video? We're going to fund you to make videos. And that didn't work. And the, the, the news organizations that went with that felt that they had hired people and they had to get rid of them now. It was, it was, it was troublesome. So now he's going to pay some news outlets for content. And it, and it won't live on the news feed, but at a separate tab, like Facebook has a video tab. Um, the 
way they're rolling it out, they don't promise to roll it out on everyone's news tab. It's only a, a percentage of Facebook when it's fully ramped up. He announced it months ago. I, I haven't seen it. So um, I haven't seen evidence that this is you know, an effort that's going to move the ball for the news industry. Another effort is one they've talked about is an oversight board, a kind of a council of, of wise men and women who will adjudicate difficult content issues. Do you see that working? Well, uh, it, they're going to be about, you know, 15 to 21 people uh, to start off. It was supposed to happen last month, the, the, the naming the people, and um, then they start hearing uh, cases to uh, possibly uh, take another look at the decisions that Facebook makes when people complain about uh, a particular piece of content uh, that's offensive or hate speech or, um, you know, uh, breaks... It, breaks the rules or flirts with breaking the rules in some way, um, they will be able to overrule those individual cases, but not change Facebook's policy. Um, I think Facebook put a lot of effort into this, but ultimately Facebook owns its own platform. So I don't think that Facebook is going to get, nor should it really get a lot of credit for bringing in an outside group because Facebook built the thing. It built Facebook, you know, to um, usher in these problems. And uh, I think you sort of have to go backwards away in order to address it, get to the core rather than have another, uh, you know, paste on to try to uh, address a system that you know, has problems built in. Just like the Internet was built without security, we're always going to have security problems. Facebook was built up with, you know, uh, inviting the kind of content that is going to be toxic. Um, and it, you just can't add on something to address it. We have a lot of uh, questions about the government's oversight of Facebook. We've got uh, the, the DOJ, the FTC, right. 47 AGs all looking at Facebook and asking, does this company engage? Has it engaged in anti-competitive behavior? Having spent so much time studying yeah. Facebook and, and with those executives, what should the federal government do? I'm not going to tell the federal government what to do. But I did supply them Facebook's playbook for, uh, you know, uh, so read the curtailing conversations. Yes, that's what they should do. Actually, I, I signed a copy in New York the other night for a guy who introduced me himself to me as someone who was working for the Attorney General of New York on Facebook. So, um, you know, maybe you'll learn something. Well, one of the lingering questions, not just for Facebook, but for a lot of tech platforms, is is this old law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which basically says... Uh, Internet sites, mm. platforms shouldn't be legally responsible for the content that users post. Do you, do you feel like that that law has outlived its usefulness? Um, no, really. I, I actually um, I'm not a, so against uh, 230 as Facebook's critics. I feel um, any site which brings in user content, particularly the massive scale that Facebook does, um, can't be responsible for a libelous content. Um, they have to be responsible for acting quickly when those things appear, but um, to treat it like a publisher like the New York Times, uh, which some people are saying they should be responsible for, uh, is infeasible and, and kind of ridiculous. So you came to the end of your reporting process. You, you talk about in the in the last chapter of the book uh your last interaction with mark um showing him the uh the the, right. the notebook um him That's recognizing right. he, he verified it himself it wasn't a hitler diary yeah and i i i, I sort of wondered if you ended up through this whole process of liking mark respecting mark and liking him more or less than when you started hmm that's interesting well let me put it this way personally he opened up to me probably more than any other journalist. And I liked the interactions with him. But I learned more disturbing things than I thought I would about him. So, uh, you know, part of it's personal and part of it, Mark, is business. Do you think we're going to be using Facebook and, and the big blue app in 10 years? I think it'll, it'll evolve. I think um, it might still be around. I think MySpace is probably still around right now, <laughs> but uh, we, we'll need to check that. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I, I think the center of gravity is going to move to you know. Right, he announced it himself. 
to um, you know the Instagram and the messaging apps, and I think um, uh, there might be less emphasis on the newsfeed. The newsfeed might might evolve something closer to what it was um, before Mark got paranoid about Twitter and, and brought in other kinds of content in real time and more newsy content. A couple of questions uh, from the audience about Mark's future at Facebook. Can you see anybody else running the company? So two words that I never heard visiting Facebook were succession plan. So uh, it's tough to conceive of Mark walking away from Facebook. Um, it's been suggested by some people that you know, maybe he should you know, ascend to executive chair um, and turn the you know, leadership over to someone else. But boy, what a tough job that would be to be the CEO uh, of, of Facebook with the executive chair being Mark Zuckerberg and who basically all, owns and control the company, of all the yeah. voting stock. Um, you know, he, you know, so uh, and some of the likely candidates, his longtime friends and deputies have left. Recently. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guy I always thought was uh, would be the guy if Mark decided to go off to an ashram somewhere uh, was Chris Cox, who was uh, an early Facebook engineer who had been um, sort of uh, in some ways the soul of Facebook. Uh, he was the person who was the keeper of the culture. And when new employees came, he would give the orientation orientation speech. Um, he was the top product guy at one point. Um, but uh, he disagreed with the direction that Facebook was taking and left about a year ago. So this multi-year journey for you is over. The book is out. You're talking about the book. You spent a lot of time with Mark while you were reporting the book. Have you heard from him? Um, actually, I did. Okay. Oh, I, tell, please tell us. Yeah. I don't want to share the, the exact language, but I have to say it was a, it was a classy note. Um, he doesn't agree with everything in the book, as you might imagine, but he appreciated my, my, my effort. I think that, that's the, the best paraphrase I, I can get give. Um, and that, that to me was very much Mark, you know, time after time we would talk and I, and I would ask him, you know, Mark, you know, people hate you. How do you cope with that? And he would give an intellectual answer. So I think, um, he, while well, he was kind in, in the note to me, he, he's intellectualized the book. So there are a couple of audience questions that really address your, your, your broader career. And I've always actually, was curious about what you thought about this one. We're I'm going to Einstein's brain. <laughs> Actually, we'll, we'll do that next. This is, do you see a way back to the idealism of the early days of hackers to achieve the potential of these tools as opposed to distracting people and giving power to bad actors? Hmm. And Hackers is this great canonical book about the early days of, of basically computer enthusiasts, of the architects of, of really the internet. And it was there was so much potential, and these were going to be tools for right. for changing the world for for positive. And today, you know, unfortunately, we kind of dwell on the negative. And so, do you see a way a way back? Well, I think that hacker spirit has never gone away. I think it, it, it you there are people who start out that way, and maybe the the pressures um, and the temptation of building a big company or getting a lot of power um, moves them away from some of those I ideals. But I think I've never seen that hacker spirit, the hacker ethic, uh, more widespread than it is now. It's just not even t in technology. People talk about life hacking and, and, and other things. And I think they talk about it in that sense that I wrote about it in the book. I actually was pessimistic at the end of my book, Hackers, which was published in 1984, that maybe money would snuff out the hacker spirit. But I think just through the, the technology and the spirit of those original hackers, which carried on and that culture, which was spread out, you know, in a very widespread manner, um, you know, uh, it's been successful beyond our wildest dreams. So even though we're in a period now where we're getting very skeptical about technology and, and rightly so, there's, it's been a lot of, uh, negative effects, of you know, not just at Facebook, though it's the prime example, but, you know, people are critical of, of what Google's doing now. Um, maybe you'll talk about what Amazon's doing at, at, at some point. Um, and it's called the, the, the tech lash. Um, but I still feel that there's opportunities to do good with technology and people with that spirit uh, can accomplish it. Okay, well, we have time for one more and we're going to use it to fulfill the promise I made at the beginning, which is you are the guy that found Albert Einstein's brain. And yeah. that sounds crazy. So 
We need another tell- hour for that. <laughs> you have two minutes. Yeah. So I, I worked for a magazine early in my career uh, called New Jersey Monthly. And my editor told me, I want you to find Einstein's brain because it had been removed from his head when he died 23 years before I got that assignment. And no one had heard from it since. So I did track down the person who had the brain who had kind of gone underground with it. Uh, he was in Wichita, Kansas, visited him in his office. And you knew it was there? No. Okay. No, I, I, I didn't know whether he still had it or um, I concluded he had it, but he danced around it for a while and finally said, after a long conversation, well, do you want to see it? And he walked behind me and there was this cardboard box, said Custis Cider. He pulls out these two big jars and there's old Albert Einstein's brain bobbing up and down in formaldehyde. <laughs> That's quite disturbing. And what what uh, <laughs> what was learned from Albert Einstein's brain? Well, actually, the guy had been trying to do a study for 23 years and gotten nowhere. Um, for me, it was like, you know, revelation. It was like, you know, this powerful thing. And, you know, it was a religious experience. Fantastic. But after I published my article, um, real scientists, this guy was a pathologist who had no ability to study a brain, um, you know, is a neuroscientist. Real neuroscientists contacted him and actually did research on Einstein's brain. So I kind of broke the logjam on that. <laughs> and do you know where it is now? Uh, the last I heard, it's moved around a bunch. Uh, it, it was, it was in the, the, the Muter Museum in Philadelphia. Then it was at Princeton Hospital where it was first removed. Um, so uh, I didn't put my GPS on it. But, I okay, but you yeah. rescued it no longer, hopefully, in a cardboard box. No, no. It's, it's in, you know, maybe a golden urn or something now. <laughs> okay, let's give a huge thank you to Stephen Levy, author of Facebook. Thank you. I'm Brad Stone, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned.